Hey everyone, welcome back to the Call Her Doctor podcast. We have an awesome guest on the podcast this week who I'm so excited about. We are joined by Madeline Jennings, who I met as an undergrad at Texas State. Madeline is a master's and PhD student at Arizona State University and wrapping up their first year just like I am. Um, This interview definitely opened my eyes to look at engineering differently, and we're just really excited to have them on to talk about their research, PhD life, and more. We really hope that you enjoy this episode, and we'll have all of the resources that Madeline shares as well as their contact information in the show notes if you want more information about anything we talk about. Enjoy. All right, everyone. Uh, We are here with Madeline Jennings. We're going to talk about a lot of different topics today. So Madeline, do you want to kind of go ahead and introduce yourself, talk a little bit about where you go to school, just a broad overview? Sure, yeah. Um, My name is Madeline Jennings. I am a PhD and master's student at Arizona State University. Um, My pronouns are they, them. I uh, am studying engineering education as my PhD and human systems engineering as my master's. So Madeline and I met um, during undergrad through SWE and some other outreach events and stuff. And just, you know, we both knew that we wanted to do our PhD and then sort of bonded going through the um, NSF GRFP application process. So Madeline also has the NSF GRFP, which is super exciting. Um, And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I guess to kind of start off, um, do you want to talk a little bit about each of your different research topics, so your master's and your PhD? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my master's and my PhD are pretty closely intertwined, actually, but um, I decided to get my master's degree as I started my my PhD because human systems engineering was very aligned with uh, my vision for what I see uh, engineering turning into. So my my research interests are very um, inclusivity and diversity focused. They're very um, critically focused. So I use a lot of um, queer theory, philosophy, critical race theory, um, crypt theory, uh, disability theory, things like that, to kind of examine the engineering institution, um, the problems with it, how we can fix it from the inside out, and how um, how it disadvantages or how it's been structured to disadvantage um, marginalized communities. Um, and so the, the master's program that I'm involved in, the human systems engineering program, is pretty interesting because it's very, um, it's very human-centered. So it does have some technical aspects in terms of like uh, mechanical engineering. There's like statistical analysis. Like there's different like subfields, like medical you could go into um, with human systems engineering, but it's very human-centric. So it centers a lot on inclusive design. It centers a lot on, yeah, it's just, it's a very good, I think it's a very good model for um, what engineering can be. It's ergonomically focused, it's inclusive, um, and I think that more engineering programs should model themselves after this type of program, um, because I think that's where engineering is really going to um, start becoming a more socially oriented uh, field that can actually um, have a much greater impact on society um, than it, than it currently does. Cool. Do you feel like the, I guess the way that your master's program is structured, do you feel like it would need to be its own separate master's program that's like associated with other, you know, PhD engineering programs, or do you think it's something that could just be intertwined with any kind of PhD program? So this particular master's program does have a, um, it does have a concentration that can be intertwined with other types of engineering. Um, like 
concentrations or programs or whatever. Um, and I think that, uh, I think that that is okay, at least for like the undergrad side of things. Um, it kind of like lets people, um, in on inclusive design and stuff like that. But I think that, um, it would be better utilized as like a master's program or like doing an undergrad um, in HSE and also like mechanical engineering or biomedical engineering or something like that, just so that you get the full uh, picture of it, or at least like incorporating HSE classes into an undergraduate degree or something like that. I don't know yeah, if that, yeah. did that answer your question? No, yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah, that's really cool. We just did an episode on um, representation and how, you know, when you don't have equal representation, you end up, especially in engineering, I think, with designs that aren't inclusive and how that's just, you know, one of the many reasons that, um, you know, an inclusive environment is is really important. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like, is this something that's offered at a lot of universities or is ASU kind of special in that? Like, do you think people, I guess, recognize at the academic level how important this is? I think that it's, becoming um, more well-known, but I, but I, from what I understand, um, Arizona State has one of the only programs in the nation that kind of is focused distinctly on ergonomics and human-centered engineering. I think that the actual community is pretty small. I'm not so involved with the HSE community. I'm taking this master's as more of like learning how to model my own, like when I become a teacher, when I become a professor, like how to teach um, engineering that's kind of why I did this master's, but I do think that the HSE community is fairly small. Um, I know that within my own community, the engineering education community, this is growing. So there's, um, there is a focus on um, not so much inclusive design, but like teaching inclusive design or how to um, so like focus on social issues within engineering and things like that. Um, so I do think that it is a pretty widespread um, uh, I want to call it a phenomenon, but definitely area of interest mm -hmm. um, within the broader engineering community. But I'm not so sure if it's coagulated yet into one, you know, specific interest group. Okay. Okay. Cool. So what, I guess, what sort of made you interested in like engineering education? Because I know you did your undergrad, just an engineering degree, right? Mm -hmm. So what was sort of, I guess, that transition? How did you know you wanted to do that? Yeah, so that's actually, that's kind of a long story. Um, when I first got started in engineering, I became interested in ferrous metallurgy and got an internship at a steel mill pretty close to Texas State University. Um, and I was there for three summers. Uh, I published with them. I um, interned with them for a long time. Um, I was very productive for them, um, but I was closeted the whole time. So um, I had gotten engaged during the third summer that I was there. Um, and long story short, I ended up coming out during my exit interview. Um, my boss was basically like, oh, that's fantastic. Good for you. Um, like, so happy for you. And then I got a phone call um, as school was starting or right after school started again that said, hey, we're sorry. Like, we can't afford another intern. Um, we're going to go with the other intern who at the time was a cishet white guy. Um, great dude, but like definitely like they preferred cishet white guy. Um, and then uh, I learned later on that they hired somebody else to replace me. 
Um, so all of this was after they had essentially promised me a job after I graduated. Um, and so it was my senior year. I didn't really have any idea what to do because I had developed all this expertise in ferrous metallurgy. Um, but Dr. Austin Talley um, at Texas State University uh, in the manufacturing engineering program, he's awesome. Um, he was teaching the capstone class and had taught plenty of other classes beforehand. Um, and he introduced me to engineering education when I, you know, I told him what happened at the steel mill. Um, so he introduced me to his wife, who's also a professor at Texas State, Dr. Kimberly Talley, um, who does engineering education research. Um, and so I was working with her and I just became fascinated with the work. Um, I had absolutely no idea that you could do a degree in engineering education. Um, and I, at that point, I was convinced that I needed to like change the engineering institution for the better because of what had happened to me. I'm sure this is, it's happened to other people. I know it's happened to other people. I've read research that says that it does. Um, so I, I, that, that's kind of in a nutshell why I decided to go into engineering education. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such a crazy story. And I think it's something that, you know, people who don't experience that don't, you know, they think it doesn't happen anymore or, um, yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm glad that you took that and now are, you know, trying to change it, but again, it just, it sucks that that kind of has to fall to you, you know, that we're this far along and that stuff like that still happens, but mm -hmm. yeah, that's, do you feel like that is, I mean, I guess based on your research and based on your experiences, do you feel like that is a common thing or do you think it has to do with, you know, specific fields like is, civil or manufacturing more like that than biomedical? Do you have, I guess, any insight into how that varies across fields or like larger companies versus smaller? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting question. Um, and one that I kind of just got done investigating. Um, so there's not a lot of research to begin with in engineering education on the queer experience, um, which is disappointing. Um, and so there's actually, we don't really know um, the distinctions between uh, like different um, subfields of engineering, um, between different like corporate environments, things like that. Um, but I can say that uh, fields with a higher representation of women tend to have a higher representation of other um, marginalized communities as well. Um, I can also say that uh, queer people in engineering tend to stay really closeted and often are really difficult to find for um, qualitative studies, which is what I do, but also especially quantitative studies, they tend to like fall out, quote unquote, of um, quantitative statistical analysis. Um, so it's really difficult to understand and kind of generalize like um, their experiences and and especially when you start getting into like uh, subdivisions of like what major, age, race, ethnicity, ability status, things like that. Um, so I wish I could answer your question, but I guess, I guess that's why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does your research focus more on, um, I guess, kind of like those stats or I guess the qualitative and quantitative numbers in engineering like fields as far as professionals go or I guess students in those majors um, in undergrad or even enrolled in those programs as graduate students or both? A little bit of both. Um, the bulk of the research is focused on the student experience. Um, there's some research on faculty staff and then there's some research on industry. 
Um, I just, I just got, I think I might've sent it to you, um, to you guys, but I just got done with a, um, a literature review published at, um, the American Society for Engineering Education Conference, um, that focused on the student-centered, um, research. Uh, and so that, there was only 22 papers, and I know that there's less papers for faculty and staff in industry. Um, mm -hmm. and that was conference and journal. Um, so it's, it's definitely underrepresented um queer people are underrepresented in research um but students are i guess the most represented and it's mm -hmm. undergraduate students typically okay 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 yeah that's it's so interesting because i especially just in the last couple months and stuff i've been learning how much you know there is um research around like women's experience in stem and i think that's where so much funding and focus is going i mean all the way from kindergarten up through like the graduate level um and i think you know i think there are a lot of different underrepresented minorities that get left out of that and so it is good to hear that there's you know that there are people who are focused on that um do you i guess have y'all found are there any i don't want to say like best practices but are there you know universities that are setting a good example are there you know, things that universities kind of consistently do that don't set a good example um, or, you know, are kind of contributing to different barriers? Yeah, so another good question. Um, I think that it's, it's a really multifaceted answer because I think that universities can be exceptional at um you know caring for their core students but the engineering um department the engineering program um isn't and so they can have um, a lot of students or a lot of universities have ally training um and that's helpful to kind of orient um faculty towards uh marginalized students experiences um but the fact that queer people are so underrepresented in engineering to begin with kind of means that the point is almost moot I suppose. Um, but universities that are doing a really good job tend to have like the ability for people to change preferred um, name and pronouns, things like that. Um, they have uh, like trauma and counseling centers that are open, open and accessible um, that aren't like crisis oriented that are there for um, students who are maybe like lower income because queer students statistically, queer people statistically are lower income um, because of getting fired from jobs for coming out as queer. Um, so universities that kind of take the research that's been generalized about queer students from like the broader body of literature, those universities are doing um, a decent job, but the engineering programs um, within, excuse me, the engineering programs within those universities, um, it, it's very, it's, it's not homogenous at all. Um, most of those programs are not doing not doing great so what do you do you think that there's anything specific that those types of programs could do to improve um or do you think it more so would stem from um like ultimately just increasing the diversity and representation of those programs kind of from the bottom up i think i mean my opinion is that the engineering institution needs a whole like overhaul right from all the way down to the curriculum to um like funding opportunities to who gets funded to the way that research is done all of these things um i think that uh like if we if we start to orient engineering to become more 
social, to become more ergonomic, to become more um, caring and human-centered, then I think that will naturally attract people who have that inclination to begin with, who aren't just um, positivistic or like numbers oriented or um, doing it for the money or, you know, things like that. Um, so I think that'll help. I also think that um, being intentional about who you're hiring, um, faculty that you're hiring is a really big, um, a really big thing. So uh, I know, I know you two talked about like how representation matters. It really matters. Um, having, having a person of color, having a queer person and like an openly queer person or having a woman teach an engineering class is, is big. Um, and I, like, I personally didn't, really, I didn't really have any of that when um, I was going to Texas State. There's one openly queer faculty member, and I think I was taught by maybe one or two women. Um, yeah, but it was mostly mostly men. So being intentional about who you hire. Um, I'm trying to think. I definitely think that like, uh, like ally training, things like that are really helpful too. So um, just being really vocal, like having the, having administration be very vocal about, um, we will support these students and we will not tolerate discrimination. Um, that I think that that would be a really good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I think like you were talking about, I think the faculty is a huge part. And I think so often, you know, we have like a center for diversity and engineering at UVA and in response to, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's been happening recently, they've announced new outreach initiatives, like community K through 12 outreach initiatives. And I think that's great, but I think universities so often reach outward to try to fix these issues rather than fixing them within the university, or they try to provide trainings to students rather than faculty. Like I know with Swede at Texas State, we did an um, unconscious bias training and it's like very few, you know, we invited all the faculty, very few showed up. And there's just so many things that they highlighted in that training that the professors, you know, had done in the past where I think if you make that training a requirement for professors rather than, you know, voluntary or just including the students in it. Um, yeah, I think that can be a huge, a huge factor. Mm -hmm. Have you, I guess, have you or like, have you talked to anyone who has successfully sort of brought that up to their university and has seen any kind of change or you know if there's someone who doesn't identify as queer how what's a, a way that they can support or encourage their university to start these initiatives and you know offer more training and offer more information and try to make a, a more research-based effort and an internal effort yeah yeah, so I do know um, there's a researcher named Donna Riley who focuses um, also on like very critical um, like destructuring the engineering institution to be more human centric. Um, I think I could be wrong. I'm not quite sure of her position. I think that she's a dean of engineering um, at I think Purdue. I'm not sure, um, but she. I mean, I, I would imagine that she incorporates a lot of what she puts in her research um, into the program. Um, and I know that in, uh, Purdue has a very, a very good, a very large engineering education um, PhD program, um, and a lot of um, like thought leaders come out of that program. Um, so I think 
I mean, I don't know a whole lot about Purdue, but I think that they're doing a decent job. Um, as far as allies go, I really, I really just recommend. So one of the things that I've been doing um, in response to like the Black Lives Matter movement is self-education. I think that that also applies to um, queer allies, um, cisgender, heterosexual queer allies. I really think that um, focusing on uh, works made by us to educate yourself instead of focusing on works that are made by other cishet people about us for other cishet people. I think that um, that's like a that's a really good way. So taking self education upon yourself to to become a better ally, um, seeking out opinions that are, you know, uh, contrary to your own. I think that's super important. Unfortunately, I think that a lot of the institutional training um, that is available, like ally training, is, um, from my experience, what I've seen, pretty superficial. Um, and so I think it's really difficult to actually incite change within, like, the whole institution using this, like, forced, like, structure of training. Um, but I do think that encouraging self-education is, is, is a good bet. Um, like faculty maybe like starting like their own study group or reading group or something like that. Like I think I really I really advocate for self-education. Um, I, I think that that's the the key to personal growth and allyship. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, do you, and it's okay if you don't all, I'm going to like look some up too, but do you have any recommendations of um, books, articles, movies, um, anything that people can use to help educate themselves? Totally, yeah. Um, so. Pose is great. Pose um, on Netflix. There's a bunch of documentaries um, out on Netflix. There's one called Disclosure that's out um, about the trans experience. Um, let's see, podcast. I love podcasts. Um, there's one called Nancy. Um, it just ended, unfortunately, but it's like four seasons of just like really great material um, created by queer people of color for queer people. Um, and queer people of color. And so uh, those are some really good resources off the top of my head. If you're interested in more like philosophical reading um, and not like, you know, in the car on your way to class, like listening, yeah. um, Cruising Utopia by uh, Jose Esteban Munoz is really good. Um, and it's like the pinnacle of queer theory. So it's, it's very philosophical. It um, deals with the, the concept of queerness um, and subversiveness and, and like what it means to be queer, um, from, from the queer perspective. Um, Judith Butler is also really good. Patrick Johnson. Um, yeah, that's, that's like more academic stuff. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for super, like, I, I wouldn't call it like easy to listen to or easy to watch, but informative stuff that's easy to digest, I suppose. Um, Nancy is really good. Query spelled Q-U-E-E-R-Y by Cameron Esposito. Um, that's another podcast. Nice. Um, and then, yeah, there's plenty of stuff on Netflix that's really good too. So cool. Sorry, thank you so much. Now. Yeah, we can <laughs> link all of that in the show notes as well for, for anybody who wants to look all of that up. Cool. Cool. I'm, yeah, I'm so glad that we got to, to talk about this. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything that you've learned and, you know, sharing your story and everything. Um, so I guess to shift, unless Maddie, if you have any other 
questions before actually, we kind of shift I gears? do. I'm really curious. So you were talking a little bit about your research earlier and um, I guess kind of some of the studies y'all do and like what, I guess, I think it was like the various theories that you all use um, during these studies. And you're talking about, you know, your qualitative versus quantitative studies. And I guess I'm just more interested in like, I guess a couple of examples of like the specifics and even like what some of those theories are. Yeah, for sure. So, um, so one of the trends with an engineering institution that I'm trying to kind of like fight against is a lot of like the socially oriented work. Um, a lot of the work on like, say the queer experience is done using like very engineering like frameworks, like systems frameworks. So like understanding how the system works, um, understanding how queer people move through the pipeline of engineering. Um, and so I'm trying to move away from that. Um, or, or my work is trying to move away from that and focus more on using um, queer theory as a framework, which is already established to understand queerness um, in relation to dominant ideologies, using queer theory to understand the queer experience in engineering um, and how we can queer engineering to make it more accessible for queer people, make it more accessible for queerness in general. And queerness is a very, like, it's a very broad term in this sense so it includes people who are who are not heterosexual not cisgender it also includes people of um, different ability statuses um, people of color neurodivergent people people who are you know quote unquote queer if you know mm -hmm. if that's that's what it says in the literature i know that queer is a touchy term um, but we're reclaiming it um, so yeah, so using frameworks like that, um, to understand the marginalized experience, um, within this very dominant, very domineering, um, and very oppressive, um, structure that is like the engineering institution and kind of understanding the history of how engineering came to be, where it came from, um, from you know, it's, it's, it's roots in like military advancement, um, it's roots in, uh, like capitalism, things like that. So, um, yeah, anti-capitalist frameworks, queer frameworks, things like that. Okay, cool, cool. Natalie, do you have anything else? I guess not for this, um, portion, but we can, I guess, shift gears a little bit and, um, I want to go back, I guess, and talk a little bit about your, um, master's research as well. I know they're kind of um, interconnected, mm -hmm. but I was wondering, I guess, what are some, I know we talked about it a little bit in our representation episode, um, things like, you know, technology not working as well for people of color and, you know, how somewhere along the line that was just acceptable and went to production. What are some of like the examples, or I guess what are, you know, when you're trying to make the case, I guess, for inclusiveness or inclusivity in engineering what are so do you have like examples that you go to or things like that um there is so I'm about to take a class on that actually um this coming semester so I'm not as much of an expert in that topic as I would like to be yet but I can say my master's advisor just wrote a book um I can't I think it's called inclusive design and engineering, but my, my master's advisor is Dr. Rod Roscoe. So if you wanted to link his book, he would be eternally grateful. Um, <laughs> he talks about um, one of the, one of the papers in his book kind of deals with um, 
uh, like hostile engineering design. So like an example of that would be anti-homeless spikes um, on, on city sidewalks. Um, that's an engineering design. Somebody engineered that. Somebody came up with that. And it's so inhumane. There's also, you can, uh, dealing with like human systems. So like hierarchical systems, um, what like policy, things like that. How can we, how can we change policy or eradicate policy even to, uh, be more inclusive towards, um, marginalized communities, um, things like that. So an example of that would be a faculty, a queer faculty member, getting a job and wanting to do uh, get like a joint gym membership for her and her partner, but gay marriage isn't legalized or recognized and you can't, you can only get like a joint gym membership for your spouse. Like that, that is also a form of um, hostile or like exclusive engineering because it is a system, right? Like the human system, hierarchical system is a system and it is engineered to exclude queer people in this instance. So um, yeah, it focuses on actual physical systems and like social systems. Okay, cool. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely going to order that book. That sounds, yeah, that sounds awesome. That's, it's so interesting because I always forget, you know, I think of engineering, even as an engineer, I think of engineering just as the technology because where, for my research, it is very technology focused. And so Mm -hmm. I forget that engineering does apply to things like social structures and policy and stuff. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out. (laughs) Yeah. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Um, And then I guess just sort of in general, I want to hit like some grad school things. So like, I know we talked a little bit about like, you know, why you wanted to go to grad school, um, you know, to study this specific topic, but how did you go about like finding a university that you know you could study this at and finding your advisor and all of that yeah so I actually um, I applied to the GRFP um, and that was my kind of like framework for whether or not I was gonna go to grad school um, I was kind of in a weird situation where I was engaged um, at the time and uh, my partner um, lived in Phoenix originally um, I was graduating. I didn't have any place to go, and um, he wanted to be close to his family. Um, and so I was looking at engineering education programs, um, and I saw that ASU had one, uh, and I was like, "Oh, that's perfect." So that was like the only one that I applied to. Um, so I got in contact with um, faculty members there. Really got along with them. They happened to have funding, and so I was like, "Cool. Well, I can go regardless of whether I get the GRFP or not." Um, Because my initial plan was I would go to grad school if I got the GRFP. And so, you know, happy circumstance, I got it. And, you know, I'm at this wonderful school where I get, I get along with my advisors, like they're doing excellent research. um, And it's, it's been a really great experience. So I just, I just kind of got lucky all around. Um, I didn't, I wasn't very systematic in the way that I picked my school. (laughs) That's awesome though. (laughs) <laughs> Did you have an opportunity to choose your advisor or because like if it's a small program, is there like one advisor, I guess, for each of your programs that you're involved in? So my master's program, we got assigned an advisor, um, but because I was uh, there a little bit before I started school, I kind of got to know everybody in the department um, and in the programs. And so uh, my advisor kind of like chose 
me, I suppose. So instead of getting um, assigned to uh, Dr. Roscoe, um, he like chose me to be assigned to, I don't, he, the master's program, they choose, they assign their uh, students to, to professors. But in my PhD program, we are able to choose our own advisors. Um, so, uh, and we have um, the first semester of our uh, first year, we don't have an advisor. That's like time that we get to um, get to know everybody. And then we're supposed to choose um, after we finish the, uh, the first semester, um, our, our advisor, excuse me, um, and then, you know, kind of move on from there. Um, I'm a weird case because there's no master's in passing um, for my PhD. Um, and so I'm doing like concurrent, the master's and the PhD. And so I don't technically have an advisor um, for my PhD right now. Um, I do, but it's like not on the books. So it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anyone, oh, I was going to say, does the master's in passing, is that the thing where it's like your first two years of a PhD, like basically add up to a master's? Is that what that means? Cause I, yeah. I, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was going to clarify. Cause I know <laughs> different schools do it, do it differently. So yeah, you can go in and get a master's or a PhD. Some schools offer a master's on the way to PhD um, mm -hmm. and then some of them don't some of them if you don't pass your PhD qualifying exam you can then get your master's so that's always yeah for anyone who's interested in grad school it's a good thing to know going in sort of what that situation looks like mm -hmm. cool so what are I guess like long term what are kind of your goals like you know five or ten years from now post PhD what do you want to be doing yeah so my, uh, my partner is, um, just got accepted to the MED program at Arizona State University. Um, and so he will probably, he'll be in school for two years and then I think has to teach for two years um, to get his, his stuff, his like tuition forgiven and stuff like that. Um, so we'll be in Phoenix for a while. Um, I have three more years before I'm supposed to graduate. Um, so that leaves a year where I'm just kind of like, in between, I was thinking about doing um, a postdoc. Um, U of A has some researchers that are doing engineering education. Um, ASU has all kinds of opportunities for um, postdocs. Um, but then there's also like the nonprofit kind of avenue. Um, so I, I think that I think that I would like to go to ac go into academia and continue doing research because I'm really I really enjoy the research side of things. But I also have been getting more involved with like the activism side of things and I, I have been enjoying um, working with uh, BLM Phoenix. I've been enjoying working with some of the queer groups on campus um, and doing research with queer folks um, in the community and so I, I, I like the activism side of things and so I'm not sure how to exactly incorporate those two together um, but hopefully hopefully a mix of the two. Cool. Yeah, that's I'm always curious when people do their PhD. Are they, you know, industry focused or academia focused or mm -hmm. okay. Cool, cool. And then one other thing I wanted to talk about. So you started your you started grad school in January, right? Like last whenever no. that was. No, no okay. I ended up so I moved to Phoenix early. Like I moved to Phoenix right after I finished my um my undergraduate degree. And I was there as a, they called me a management intern, but I was doing research under the, uh, my current advisor. 
um, my often books okay. advisor. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Yeah. And so I was there from January to August and then I started, um, with my cohort in August. So okay. I just, okay, I just finished cool. my first year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if like when you started affected your application cycle and all of that. Cause I know that's a question we get a lot is like, when do you start grad school applications? So yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. So my university has like a rolling schedule or this program has a rolling schedule. So I didn't actually, uh, when, when did I apply? I applied to my master's program in like, like two weeks before the, the like school actually started or something mm -hmm. like that. And I got accepted. Um, but I think I started when I turned in my GRFP was about when I was turning in my graduate application. Um, so I, I don't know, I'm pretty proactive, but like the rolling schedules are pretty pretty lenient, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 I think there's kind of two routes. You're either like submitting in October, November and everything's done and locked in, or it's like, yeah, the, you know, June before you start. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's been like your favorite part so far of grad school, like either school focused or like grad school life as compared to undergrad? Yeah. Um, I am really enjoying grad school because it's very, um, it's challenging me in ways that undergrad never did. Um, it's, it's very discussion oriented and it's very critical. Um, and I really, really like that. Um, I'm able to engage with my peers who are developing expertise in, in their own, you know, fields and I'm able to incorporate they're, they're wonderful, wonderful research into my own and they can do the same with mine. Um, and so I've really enjoyed kind of the collaborative aspect of grad school. Um, I would say that's been like my favorite thing about it so far. And then also just kind of like the, the self-sufficiency of it. There's no handholding, um, like there is an undergrad. <laughs> um, and I, I, I like that a lot. There's a lot of, um, you have a lot of agency to kind of like control what classes you take and, you know, the research that you do um, and what you're interested in. And I, I really, I really enjoy that. Nice. How has coronavirus and all of that sort of affected that collaborative environment? Mm -hmm. How is, how is all of that going? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that's one thing I miss is the in-person discussion collaborative aspect of the classes. Um, yeah, coronavirus is really uh, taking a toll on, um, I think my mental health definitely in terms of like, just like Zoom fatigue and, and worrying about my family and worrying about my friends and, you know, not being able to see people in my cohort that I've become really close with. Um, so yeah, that's definitely been a bummer. Um, it's also kind of like, I'm lucky my research can be done um, virtually, um, but you know, it's always better in person. Um, so I, like I'm missing out on that. Um, and I think that like access, like my university didn't do a wonderful job with accessibility um, in terms of like moving from in-person to online. Um, and I don't think that they're doing a wonderful job going into the fall semester. Um, so I understand that that's really like, that's going to affect a lot of people. Um, I don't know if it'll affect me necessarily, but I am worried about like the general student body. Um, so it's a large, it's a massive university. So, mm -hmm. yeah. 
Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just so crazy, like, to have this, I don't know if you feel this, but when all of this started, and we started working from home, I was like, this is not what I expected my PhD experience to be, Mm -hmm. like, I did not expect to be sitting in my sweatpants in my living room every day, doing my PhD research, like, that's just, you know, not the experience I expected. Yep. I have a friend who's um, in California doing his PhD, I think in biomedical engineering. Um, And he was supposed to go and do clinicals this past semester and his clinicals got canceled and he was still paying like full tuition um, and not doing clinicals. So yeah. 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 Yeah, I know it could be worse, but (laughs) someone made the point um, in my med school group chat and they were like, at least this is happening to us now, I guess, like for us coming in as first years. And I guess for y'all, I guess, just finishing your first year, but they're like, at least it's not happening super late in the game when it's like really crunch time and like everything. I feel like the the stakes are just a lot higher. Yeah. Like it's now. And then by the time we get to that point, hopefully everything has calmed down. I'd hope so in a a year, two years, but uh, we'll see. Yeah. I hope so. My sister's in nursing school and like the two years that she's well, she'll be two years in nursing school in December. She's supposed to graduate in December, but she, um, yeah, like she's only, she only did clinicals for the first year. Everything else got canceled and like, she's, yeah, I don't, I, I can't, I, I really, I really feel for people who, who like their research or their work or their school is like, you know, is tied to being in a physical location. Um, that like super sucks. Yeah. It's, just such a crazy, I don't know. And I know we have international students, a lot of international students in our lab as well. And I'm like, what a crazy, one of them is a first year, like what a crazy first year in the U.S. Like just such, yeah, such a wild experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My friend, he's in my cohort. He's from India. He's not like he was supposed to go back to India to see his family and he's with family in Illinois instead because he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to come back for school and he's about to take his qualifying exam in August. So he has to be here for that. Um, so he like missed out on an entire summer with his family, um, which is super a bummer. Um, yeah, cool. Well, I guess Maddie, do you have any other questions? I can't think of any, I mean, I'm sure I'll have more questions about your research at some point, but in that case, I'll just reach out (laughs) to you. (laughs) Yeah. Feel free. And then I guess, yeah, Madeline, do you have anything else like, topic wise that you want to hit or anything else like that um I know that we said we were going to talk about GRFP I there's one point that I'd really like to like push home for people that are thinking about applying to the GRFP get it yeah started and get it done early (laughs) yes um that was a lifesaver for me I think I started it was due in October I think I started in like May um or maybe before that too. Um, that was, that was a lifesaver. So that's, you know, pro tip. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That, and I think finding someone like your university should have someone either, I know at Texas state, did you work with, um, her name was Andrea, I think Andrea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There. So hopefully we both had someone thankfully at Texas state who, did workshops. I know she did probably five revisions of mm-hmm. my application. Um, yeah, walked me through the whole process when I was like, because I ended up deferring my GRFP because UVA offered another fellowship and I couldn't like, you know, they don't want to mm-hmm. let you accept both. Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, she walked me through that whole process. So if you can find someone at your university who like knows what the GRFP is looking for and understands that whole process, that's also super helpful. Absolutely. But yeah. Start early. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what was your, like with your um, personal statement, I guess, and I'm sure this kind of ties back to your research, but how did you tie that to like broader impact? I'm always curious. Yeah. So um, some of the research that is done on the queer experience in engineering is done by cishet people. Um, my broader impact, like my personal broader impact was that I'm, I'm in the community. Um, I identify as queer, I identify as non-binary. Um, and I have that perspective that um, some other researchers just, just don't or can't have. Um, and so uh, I felt like that was valuable. Um, that was a valuable perspective in the research and it was something that I was excited to share. And it's, it's research that was really, I'm very passionate about because it's, I have a, a very personal tie to it. Yeah, it, okay. I did a short answer. <laughs> did you, when you were like putting that into your broader impact statement, did you feel weird at all about doing that? Cause I know I felt kind of, weird about saying like as a woman in engineering I'm you know promoting women in engineering and that sort of thing did that was that like uncomfortable for you at all if you're comfortable answering that yeah um I don't really remember I think if anything I was um I was excited um, and honestly a little bit angry that I was having to write that in the first place. Um, so I, of course, like self-promotion, like we all have to learn how to self-promote and do it comfortably, um, especially within academia. But I think that, um, yeah, I, I didn't see it so much as a self-promotion type of thing. I saw it as more of like a, like a, like philosophically, there's something wrong with the engineering education, like research community, the fact that there's no, no representation there. Um, and so I saw it as more of like a call to action, I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, no, that's, that's helpful. That's awesome. I guess, so I, we could talk forever, but <laughs> I was just today thinking about I was reading a paper and in the paper they said, you know, this research, you know, advances the state of the art and blah, blah, blah. How do you, have you gotten comfortable doing self-promotion in things like publications or is that still something you're working on? Do you have any advice for people who are struggling with that? I'm struggling with it. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I, um, so again, it kind of ties back to like the lack of research, but like I self-cite in some of my research because um, this, the stuff that I write, like it's, it's like un unique, uh, again, like this is self-promotion right now and I feel a little weird about it, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I kind of have gotten over that in terms of like in my writing, um, I'm comfortable self-citing, I'm comfortable citing, um, like my advisor, uh, who, who does like similar work. Um, I, I guess like tips that I have, um, I don't know, like your research, you, you got the GRFP, you're doing research, you're in a PhD program because you are like exemplary in some fashion, right? So it would stand to reason that your research is exemplary. So why not? Like, of course it's unique. You should, you should cite it um, or you should promote it. 
because um, otherwise, you know, what's the point of doing research if, if you're not going to promote it and nobody's going to read it, you know? So I, I definitely, um, I do still struggle with the self-promotion thing, especially like in person. Um, I hate presenting. Um, I hate like advertising my work. Um, but I feel very comfortable like writing. Um, and so I'll self-promote like blog, like blog posts and, and, and like writing in my own papers and things like that. Yeah. Shameless, shameless self-promotion. Please, <laughs> my, please do. <laughs> my, um, the, so we just had our annual conference. Um, of course it was virtual, but my, uh, the paper that I submitted was selected as a finalist for, um, the best diversity, equity, and inclusion paper. Um, and we're still waiting on, on like who won. Um, but like, it was, it was an honor to be chosen as a finalist. I'm writing a blog post about that. Um, okay. and kind of like the background of that research and, and, you know, mm -hmm. what inspired me to do that research. So, yeah. Okay. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> if you, um, if you want to like, I guess whenever that blog post does come out, if you want to send it our way, we'll add it to the show notes. Um, whenever it does come out. Okay. So anyone yeah. listening can read it. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Cool. Yeah, no, that's, that's super helpful. I think self-promotion is a huge thing to learn, and especially if you're someone who, you know, suffers from imposter syndrome, that's mm -hmm. a big deal. And I think, yeah, so I guess for people listening who don't know, like, grad school is primarily focused on publications. That's sort of how you measure productivity. Um, and it's more common in some fields to like cite your own work. So when you publish something, you want other people to cite it um, because that just sort of boosts its credibility um, and shows that, you know, it's important work. Other people are using it to as like a building block for their work. Um, and so I think in like computer science, it's really, really common to cite your own work in like every other paper you publish. Um, in other fields, it's not, and it can feel very weird to self-cite, because I know we did that for some of my undergrad research, and uh, it's it's good. It helps you out, but it feels very awkward to be, like, based on the knowledge in this paper that I wrote. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, yeah, no, that's good that you're getting more comfortable with it and stuff. That's awesome. It's definitely been a journey, but, but yeah, it, it takes time, but I am becoming more comfortable with it. Yeah, so. yeah. Good. And I'm sure it's helpful too, knowing that like what you're researching will have such an impact and like does currently have such an impact on, you know, student experience and stuff. I'm sure, you know, that probably makes it a little bit easier to, <laughs> to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> cool. All right. Um, I think I'm looking at our notes. I think that's, yeah. Unless Maddie, you have anything else? No, I think we kind of hit everything on our list of stuff that we wanted to talk about. Cool. Well, yeah, thank you so much for your time and for, you know, explaining your research and giving us all of those great resources. And again, we'll link all of those um, in the show notes and we can share them on social media and stuff as well. Um, and yeah, we definitely, I guess, you know, want to keep up with you and would love to have you on again at some point to talk about, you know, your next year of research and everything. <laughs> um, yeah, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for, thank you for this awesome podcast. I can't wait to listen through the rest of the episodes. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're excited. <laughs> <laughs> cool. cool. All right.
Hi guys, thanks so much for listening to Call Her Doctor podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at callherdoctor.podcast where we share more tips and tricks and answer questions. For more information, be sure to check out our personal blogs at themjdiaries.com and sheengineered.com. You can find the links in the show notes. We would also love it if you would head to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and review so we can get this podcast out there to more people and continue to grow the Call Her Doctor podcast community.